Hello and welcome to Nudge, a podcast dedicated to understanding how consumers' brains work. It would probably surprise you to learn that in the early 20th century, people hardly brushed their teeth. Americans' teeth were so bad that the federal government declared it a national security risk. All that changed when Claude Hopkins, a marketing genius, started to apply his marketing skills to sell toothpaste. Hopkins had earlier been responsible for bringing unknown products such as Quaker Oats and the Goodyear Tire into the limelight, turning them into household names. Claude Hopkins' signature marketing technique was influencing consumer habits. He did it by creating a cue or trigger in his marketing, which led to a routine, a reward, and eventually a fully-fledged habit. Hopkins decided to follow this blueprint to turn the toothpaste brand Pespident into a national habit. The wording on his ad read, Just run your tongue across your teeth. You'll feel a film. That's what makes your teeth look off-colour and invites decay. His ad had images of smiling people with beautiful white teeth which seemed to reinforce the cue on which he would anchor his marketing. The ad further read, Note how pretty teeth are seen everywhere. Millions are using a new method of teeth cleaning. Why should any woman have dingy film on her teeth? Pespident removes the film. What Hopkins was doing here was cueing in action, rubbing your tongue across your teeth. Everyone would do it after they read the ad. They'd noticed the dinghy film on their teeth and realised the need to brush their teeth to receive the reward, which was of course a beautiful, attractive smile that you can achieve with clean teeth. Hopkins managed to identify a universal cue which he tied to a reward. People followed the connection of the cue to the reward and in the span of one decade, 65% of the population had adopted toothpaste up from 7% just 10 years before. What's shocking though is that his claim was outright untrue. The film he alluded to in the advertisement is a naturally occurring membrane which cannot be removed by toothpaste, which raises a question, was it ethical? In today's episode we'll be talking through how habits define our behaviour, how marketers like Hopkins have created highly effective marketing using a simple habit-based framework, and the ethics behind this work. I'm joined again by the brilliant Natalie Nahai. Natalie is an international speaker and author of the best-selling book, Webs of Influence. I started our discussion by asking Natalie about how 21st century products like Twitter and Facebook build habits using Claude Hopkins' blueprint. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. 
Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new Service Hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. So we talk about habitual patterns of, of behavior. And often when we think about that, we think about the social media platforms. So if you think about ways in which you get triggered to open up your Instagram feed or to refresh your Twitter feed or whatever it is, the reason we do it is because we're expecting something and we're expecting some kind of stimulation or reward or we're wanting to be lifted out of a dysphoric state such as boredom or sadness or a sense of loneliness. And the reason that we know that we can get this online is because we've been rewarded there in the past. And when you look at the, the neurochemical and neuroscientific research, um, you tend to find that dopamine, which is a reward chemical in the brain, does many, many things, um, but it tends to have an active role to play in this sort of behaviour. So um, dopamine was first discovered or identified in the 50s by two Swedish researchers, Carlson and Hillop, and they found that it was um, important for all manner of things from, I don't know, motivation and moving and sleeping, but also to things like seeking out pleasure, which is really, really interesting. Um, and so when you look at the research, you'll find that uh, the D2 receptors in the brain in the mesolimbic pathway tend to be the ones that are most critical to our sense of wanting, our wanting behaviours, our seeking behaviours, which is why when things go wrong, this can lead towards addictive patterns of behaviour. What Natalie points out here is that habits take hold when dopamine is released into the brain. The pleasurable feeling we get after completing an action is key to kick-starting a habit loop. That's what made Hopkins Toothpaste ads so successful. They matched the reward of feeling more attractive with the action of brushing teeth. Now this sounds simple, but huge billion-dollar companies get this wrong. To explain, let's look at the abysmal performance of P&G's Febreze when it first entered the market. Febreze was a revolutionary product. Instead of masking bad smells, it actually removed them completely, breaking down the molecules that caused dogs to smell or wet shoes to stink. It was groundbreaking, but when it was first released, no one bought it. The P&G executives decided to axe the product, but the product management team intervened. They explained that the problem was down to the fact that the product provided no reward to its users. They told a story about a customer with nine cats who was asked to use the product as part of market research. This old lady's house stank before using Febreze and after, it smelt completely normal. But the lady, she had no idea. She'd got used to the smell before, so didn't notice any difference after it was gone. The problem was that there was no reward, so there was no dopamine. P&G changed the product giving it a sweet, citrusy smell, and began marketing their product instead as an air freshener, a product used to give the room a pleasant, aromatic feel. With that, sales of Febreze went through the roof. People who tried the product became hooked to the smell, and they successfully formed a habit.
The last two examples came from Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit. I asked Charles before recording this podcast about how other companies change habits to improve behaviour, and he gave an interesting example about a new CEO at an industrial company in the 80s. Now, new CEOs often follow a standard script about costs and profits, the evil of government interference, and a promise to implement various business buzzwords. But Paul O'Neill, the new CEO of a Fortune 500 manufacturer, Alcoa, surprised everyone during his maiden speech to investors. Contrary to the standard script, he perplexed his audience by his opening remarks. He said, I want to talk to you all about work safety. He then went on to explain his vision of making Alcoa an injury-free workplace and proceeded to point out the fire exits in the room while instructing the audience on their use during an emergency. The CEO seemed naive to investors, missing the bigger picture. But Paul O'Neill knew something they didn't. He knew the science of changing habits. The key to changing a whole host of bad habits is by breaking one small habit. This is called the keystone habit. This change causes a chain reaction for disrupting all other existing habits. It's why those that start exercising, even just once a week, will often find they also spend more time with their family, eat healthier, and even spend less on their credit card. Breaking one habit helps break them all. The CEO, O'Neill, focused on breaking one bad habit at the organisation, which was, of course, staff safety, and he used it to change a bunch of other bad habits. As you may have guessed it, Paul succeeded immensely in his quest for an injury-free Alcoa, bringing down the rate of work injury from once a week to just twice a year. But in addition to this, so many other habits changed as well. To become that safe, the organisation had to be more efficient, the organisation had to be more motivated, it had to constantly look for improvements, all things that made the organisation more successful. Plus, the employees were more engaged than ever before as well, happy that the boss finally took their work safety seriously. And overnight, they became happy to change their old ways and to become efficient when working. It should come as no surprise that during O'Neill's tenure, Alcoa's income rose by 500% and subsequently its market capitalisation rose by $27 billion. O'Neill's triumph might seem a bit outdated. Do employees really change their habits so easily today? Aren't we more aware of how we work? Ben Horowitz would disagree. In his book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, he states that breaking a keystone habit has actually been key to achieving the super-fast growth at today's biggest companies. He gives the example of Amazon, who build their desks out of old doors. These uncomfortable, impractical desks only have one benefit. They're cheap. But why would Amazon, one of the world's most successful companies, care about the cost of their desks? Well because of keystone habits. This keystone change helped cement the notion that frugality was essential if Amazon was to deliver value. It forced employees to consistently think about getting a better deal or finding a faster, more economical way of achieving a goal. Ben Horowitz actually implemented a similar approach at his own consultancy, AE16Z. 
he strictly enforced a $10 per minute fine for being late to a meeting with a client. Now, for most, this fine was a tiny deduction on the astronomical fees consultants would collect, but it still had an incredible effect. It forced employees to change a keystone habit, which was tardiness, and led to a bunch of similar bad habits improving, including the consultants being more prepared, more courteous to clients, and ultimately getting more ongoing business. Creating habits can sell more toothpaste and air freshener, while changing habits can improve the work your organisation does. But there's a dark side to habit alteration, which, of course, is addiction. I asked Natalie about the science behind how we get addicted. Anyway, so specific dopamine systems in the brain can encourage us to seek out new experiences. Um, But there is research to suggest that it's the complementary opioid system that enables us to really... Um, sort of sink into the experience and really like it or enjoy it or to feel satisfied. The problem is, of course, is that when we're talking about social platforms online where the gratification is immediate, it's instant, it's unsatisfying, and we mentioned earlier, it's unpredictable, so there's a variable ratio of reinforcement. We don't know when the reward will come, what form it will take, how big it will be, etc. The dopamine system kind of gets quite excited um, And so we can end up in a dopamine loop. So the the act of seeking becomes inherently rewarding. And so we end up caught in the behaviour as opposed to the actual outcome, which is finding something that's really satisfying. And so this this seeking behaviour kind of can spiral out of our control. And I'm sure you've probably experienced this, but, you know, you can be opening your Instagram feed at like three in the morning and suddenly you realise after an hour that you're watching camels skating on ice or whatever it is and you think, how on earth did my life become this? Well, this is how. We're we're quite easily hackable. Um, And so we become conditioned to expect possible rewards in such platforms, uh, which then exacerbates our habitual checking behaviours. So, so yeah, so that's kind of a a bit of a a quick synopsis of what can happen with these platforms when they're optimised to elicit certain behaviours. As Natalie says, we're all quite easily hackable. As long as you know the science behind how habits form, you can start to build products or create marketing that hook consumers in, whether they like it or not. Which begs the question, is any of this ethical? That's the million dollar question. Well, that's the ethical question. Um, Thanks for raising that. So so few people actually do, and it's such an important part of of what we have to pay attention to when we're thinking about shaping behaviours. I think it's a, it's a grey area. It's the, the place I'd like to start with this. It's a grey area because each of us have different desires for how we want to live our lives. We have different thresholds. We have different susceptibilities as well. So um, if you're in a good place, potentially, uh, if you're feeling that you are emotionally more supported in your life, you're not going through any difficult periods maybe you're going to be less susceptible to comparing yourself to other people on social media or comparing yourself to the next model that's promoting a specific brand. But then there's going to be people or times in one's life who are more, that make us more, hang on, let me rephrase that. So like, yeah, some of us will be more naturally susceptible to these things and some of us will be going through periods in our life where we are more at risk of um, having our opinions or behaviours swayed. And I think we have to consider the vulnerability piece in this that, We're not just designing for users, for some unknown person out there. We're actually setting the standards of best practice. If what we do becomes adopted by an entire industry, 
then we're also going to be, um, we're complicit, but also we're going to be the users of those best standards. So for instance, um, there's, you know, I'm sure you've heard this chatter of people who are high up in some of the tech companies in Silicon Valley. They're sending their kids to schools where technology is not allowed in the classroom. And you've got to ask yourself, well, why is this? And so I think in terms of asking oneself how to orient ethically um, the practices that we have to create content, platforms, etc., that's more persuasive or more engaging, the question really has to balance between you know, could we do it? Is it possible? Versus should we do it? Is it ethical? Would I feel comfortable if I was being um, uh, encouraged to interact with this platform in this way? Would I feel comfortable if my beloved, whether that's my child or a parent or a grandparent or a lover, was being encouraged to interact with the platform in this way? Um, and all of us will have a different gauge as to what is and what isn't acceptable, which is why it's so important to have a diverse set of teams, of voices, of people represented um, when we're making these design decisions or these marketing decisions. Um, and that's why research also is really important. How does this actually get received? Do I have my finger on the money when I think that this is an okay amount of behaviour persuasion? Um, so, yeah, so these are some of the things that I would suggest so making sure that you have a sense of whether you would find it acceptable, making sure you seek that kind of response from others. Would you find this acceptable? Looking for people in different contexts, different cohorts, people with different experiences to ourselves, and then making an informed decision that hopefully has mutual benefit of the customer and the company um, at its heart. And I think that, even though it sounds complex, is, as far as I can tell at this point, one of the best ways to move forward with these decisions. Deciding whether this is ethical or not isn't easy, and it's definitely not something we can unpack in a 20-minute podcast. But simple rules of thumb are still useful to follow. Nir El, who I spoke to in a previous episode, explains the framework he follows. He asks two questions. First, would the user benefit from the product? And secondly, would you, the maker, use it? If the answer to both is no then you shouldn't make it, and it's unethical. That's all from me today. I want to give a huge thank you to Natalina High. She was brilliant to chat to, and her book really opened my eyes to the world of persuasion online. If you're interested in giving her book, Web of Influence, a read, then you can do so by clicking the link in the show notes. That'll take you straight to the Amazon page. And if you work in marketing or product design, then I'd say this really is a must read. So please check it out. I also want to say thank you to Charles Duhigg. While he couldn't join me on the podcast, he did share some interesting insights over email. His book, The Power of Habits, is another vital piece of reading for anybody who needs to convince others. Anyway, that's it from me this week. Please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a big difference. And if you haven't already, use the link in the show notes to sign up to our mailing list. You'll get an email every time a new podcast goes live, so you'll never miss a show. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Nudge.